Just a brief disclaimer this week, there are some very slight adult themes. As usual, it's nothing graphic, but please check out the post on mythpodcast.com for more information. This week on Myths and Legends, it's a story from European folklore, where we'll learn that being impossibly rich is somehow a difficult thing, warranting unending stress and anxiety. Oh, and why you shouldn't throw surprise weddings. The creature this week is Bobby. He's ready to help you ignite that spark of your love life in the afterlife. Or eat your entrails. This is Myths and Legends, episode 226, Failing Upward. This is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Today's story is a long one, as you can probably guess from the runtime. And it's an interesting one. First told in the 1500s, it's set in Cyprus, a large island in the Mediterranean, and it involves, well, guys making some pretty questionable choices and supernatural powers, rewarding them for their, once again, terrible decision-making. Basically, the protagonist gets a powerful supernatural item that changes his life and that of his children forever. We'll jump in on Cyprus, in the Middle Ages, to a son of a rich merchant family who has just received some terrible news. Kid, I'm so sorry, but your parents, your parents are dead, the physician said to Theodore. Theodore hung his head. It was tragic, but not surprising. This was the Middle Ages, and they got like a paper cut or a cold or something. So basically a death sentence. Theodore took a deep breath. He was an only child. He was now alone in the world. The doctor made way for the lawyer to come in and sit down with the teenager. Theodore. He consoled the boy, saying that his parents had been great people of an ancient line. Theodore would just have to be consoled by their massive wealth. Theodore blinked. Wait, wait, what? The lawyer nodded. Yep, his parents had been absurdly rich. They were good caretakers of the family's estate, and it had tripled under their stewardship. With even the scantest provisioning, Theodore would have enough to last him in his line for the rest of their days, and I'm, I'm sorry, what are you doing right now? Oh, don't mind me, Theodore grinned. I'm just buying a solid gold toilet for my horse. The lawyer nodded and closed up his folio. This should go well. Theodore walked into his house to see all of his buddies in a circle. Theodore furrowed his brow. Wait a second. This wasn't the weekly money bonfire that he put on for the town. This is an intervention, Theodore's friends said, shifting uncomfortably in Theodore's solid gold folding chairs. Theodore had to get his spending under control. Theodore scoffed. What, had he been too generous, too giving to them and the town? The men looked at each other. Kind of, yes. Look, they loved all the stuff. And that was why they were here. One friend whispered into the speaker's ear. Also, they cared about him. Yes, definitely that more than the other stuff. He could spend, but 
maybe not so much. Theodore shook his head. And how did they suppose he'd do that? Have even the barest amount of self-control and planning? The men said, of course not. He should get married. Theodore was confused. Married? The men nodded. Yeah, that would help him get control of things. And nothing saves money like throwing a wedding and having a bunch of kids. Since Theodore's parents were no longer with him, they took the liberty of arranging a marriage. So, surprise, this intervention was now his wedding. This money bonfire just turned into a different type of money bonfire. The friends rushed Theodore out the back of the house to see Graciana, his new bride, waiting for him among the assembled nobles. Stunned, Theodore was pushed forward to the altar. Graciana looked him over. This was the guy who her father had betrothed her to, sight unseen, on the mere mention of him being wealthy. The Middle Ages were such a fun time to be alive. The pair was married, and Theodore's friends were patting each other on the back. They did a good thing here today. Their friend, their friend was going to be all right. Oh, hey, it's a messenger from Dad, Fortunatus, Theodore's son, said. The 18-year-old rushed out to beat the servants to hear from his dad while Graciana stayed back, rolling her eyes. But the messenger pushed past the boy to find the head butler or whoever would manage the servants of the house and whispered in his ear. The man nodded and called the servants together. Yeah, we're, we're leaving, the servant said to Graciana, because you're broke. Turned out that Theodore's friends had been somewhat effective, but all they had really done was slow the bleeding. When Theodore lost interest in married life after a matter of months, he said he was going to do his feudal duty and head off to the king's court. That was 19 years ago. Theodore had sent a beautiful greeting card on the day his son was born. I mean, it was signed regards, but nobody's perfect. The only thing that really slowed the spending was that he had to request it from home and then avoid Cyprus, his island like the plague, but eventually the finite nature of his finances caught up with him, and he tried to make things better by investing, but he didn't really know what that meant. And so he spent even more money trying to make money. The messenger coming to the house was really just a servant doing his fellow servants a favor and telling them that they wouldn't be getting paid for the past few months of work. More importantly, in the original story at least, Graciana and Fortunatus had to cook and wash themselves. Like peasants. Horror of horrors. Two weeks later, Theodore sat by the table, trying to figure out how to slice a bean three ways, when he looked up to his son's pet hawk, and asked Fortunatus if he could uh, borrow the bird. Fortunatus stood. He saw the sadness with which his father looked on him, and Fortunatus knew why. Fortunatus was a burden on the family, what with his stupid, selfish need of food and shelter, Theodore stood. There, there, son. Also, yes, but what made Theodore sad was that he wouldn't be able to provide the life a child of his deserved. Fortunatus nodded, saying that he would help in what way he could. He would leave. He would go make his fortune in the world, serve the king, and send money back to his family. He would leave tomorrow. Theodore grimaced. Tomorrow was still like two more meals? Fortunatus nodded. He understood. He would leave tonight. Theodore was still hesitant. 
Fortunata sighed. He would leave right now. boy. Down at the docks in Cyprus, Fortunatus looked on the two bodies being carted off the ship belonging to the Count of Flanders in modern-day Belgium. He turned to the guy obviously overseeing the loading of cargo and smirked. Looked, uh, looked like the Count had some recent vacancies on his staff. The man grimaced. Wow, okay, too soon. Those were his friends, but yes, child with a pet hawk. They did have some openings. What were his qualifications? Fortunatus said that he was the child of a noble. He could hawk, joust, shoot, ride, read, and... But the servant cut him off. Fortunatus had the job at son of a noble. Fortunatus rocked back on his heels. Wow, nice. Could he go aboard? The servant shrugged. Yeah, he could do whatever he wanted now. He instantly outranked the servant, who had been here for 20 years. Privilege was fun like that. Fortunatus grinned. Nice. Because Fortunatus's mother had foreseen that her husband was not remotely responsible, she put some of his quickly dwindling fortune toward making sure Fortunatus had the education of a nobleman. And in the service of the Count of Flanders, it paid off. Fortunatus gained the attention of his employer when they stopped off at the Italian ports, and Fortunatus was the only one who could speak Italian. The Count grew to trust Fortunatus implicitly, and the two became friends. I mean, friends were one man worked for the other, but you know. Still, Fortunatus was just a servant of the Count, a fact which rankled the other servants. They had been there for years, and yet this guy was getting all the best horses and gifts, making friends with princes, kings, and queens. They decided that something needed to be done about this upstart. So, they called Rupert. Rupert was the oldest servant, and said that he had a plan for getting rid of Fortunatus. He just needed some cash. Taking Rupert at his word, the servants took up a collection, and together raised 15 crowns to get rid of Fortunatus so they would all have a shot at advancement. Rupert took that money, approached Fortunatus, and the pair started partying. They both took some time off. Rupert introduced Fortunatus to, quote, comely women, and a week's worth of wine and sweetmeats later, and the pair were friends. And that was the goal of living it up on the other servant's dime, friendship. Because a week later, with Fortunatus in a relaxed stupor, Rupert told him a secret. The Count of Flanders had recently gotten married, and Fortunatus might have heard, but the Count was a jealous guy. Some of the servants had been getting close with the ladies-in-waiting in the Count's house. Uh-huh, Fortunatus sat upright, listening intently, and... And apparently, the Count had plans to assuage this, this particular anxiety. He would take his four closest servants on a trip tomorrow and task them with making some deliveries when they got to Luxembourg. On each one, there would be three stout youths to hold the Count's servants, and after they caught him by surprise and a doctor, probably not a doctor, would do the deed. The Count would return home with four eunuchs. Just then, the pair heard the knock at the door. It was a messenger for Fortunatus, on cue. Fortunatus was to prepare to leave. He was going to Luxembourg tomorrow with the boss, and, unrelated, pack loose-fitting pants. Fortunatus thanked the attendant 
and dismissed him. Rupert nodded at the man, and the servant left. When they were alone, Fortunatus turned back to Rupert. Uh, unrelated, but how could he escape the city? Tonight. There was no way out of the city that night. The gates were closed. But Rupert said that the Porto de Vaca opened first. Fortunatus rose with a nod, saying that he would be out that gate at first light. Please don't tell anyone he was going. All he needed was a three-day head start. Rupert nodded. Certainly, he would do anything to help his new friend. Fortunatus didn't stop until he was across the channel, in Britain, coming to London with what possessions he could carry on horseback from his time with the Count, which amounted to about 500 crowns. I don't know what that would be in 2021 money, but it doesn't really matter, because Fortunatus squandered it pretty much instantly on special lady friends. He thought it was love, because I guess he didn't understand that it's not love when you have to pay to be around them at all, but when he was broke, he went to confront them, and he was removed by the gentleman tenants, who stayed there with the women and took a cut of the earnings, but let's not get into labels. And Fortunatus, broke and beaten, found himself back on the street. Still, he was the son of a noble, so that means he continued to fail upward. He became, again, the servant of an Italian count living in England. But this time, he didn't have the time to earn the ire of his fellow servants and have them concoct a whole castration ruse because everyone was arrested for murder. If you're thinking, Jason, wow, you are taking your time getting to the actual point of the story, well, you've never read the original. I linked it in the show notes. Because yeah, there was a murder investigation because someone stole jewels from the king. Fortunatus's employer, a nobleman, entertained another nobleman, the murder E, alongside the murderer. The two went to a separate room, and the noble had his throat cut at the dinner party, and body dumped into the toilet. Fortunatus's boss did not ask any questions and let the murderer leave. But he also didn't report the crime. And because of this, he and his entire household were executed. Except for Fortunatus, who as he was being led up to the gallows, had the cook behind him cry out that Fortunatus had been traveling the day of the murder. He had no knowledge of it. Fortunatus's bonds were cut, and he was instructed to leave Britain immediately. He complied, not even going back to the Count's house for his stuff, which was good because the king, so angry at the theft of the jewels and the complicity of the Count, announced that it was open season on the Count's house, and the people of London completely ransacked it. Fortunatus fled across the channel once again. We'll see Fortunatus actually get the supernatural item and the point of the story, but that will be right after this. Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit Forest. The forest had been a bad choice 
Fortunatus thought, as he approached day three with no food. Seeing as, when he landed in Brittany, he couldn't just fail his way into a job, like he had with the first few people he asked, he decided to take a 10-minute shortcut through the forest to find the nearest town so he could keep asking around. That had been three days ago. Three days without sleep or food, wandering in circles. Fortunatus fought a bear and was down to drinking his own blood from his wounds for sustenance. It was not going well. Finally, sleep took him. Or he passed out. Because one morning, he woke up on the forest floor a fine coating of dew covering him, and he was looking into the eyes of a beautiful woman. He shot up, and then dropped to his knees, begging the woman for directions out of the forest. She smiled, telling him that she was going to help him. You see, she was Fortuna, the Roman goddess of fortune and luck, who, yes, despite being a pagan goddess, somehow managed to stay popular in a prominently Christian society well into the Middle Ages. She said that she had six virtues, that she could bestow on others, according to the positions of the planets. And today was a day when she could give that gift. She had wisdom, riches, strength, health, beauty, and long life. Riches, Fortunatus blurted out before she had even finished. Fortuna, the goddess, said, really? He could take a minute. He could choose strength. He could be like Captain America or I guess Captain Cyprus. Ooh, want to be really, really ridiculously good looking? There's beauty. Spoiler alert, but something called the Black Death was on its way, soonish. Health might be nice. Fortunatus waved his hands for her to finish up. Riches, final answer. Fortuna nodded. Sure, got it. Not saying there's a wrong choice here, but uh, you know what, never mind. Riches. She pulled out a purse. The rules were that the purse would always contain 10 of whatever currency of the land it was currently in. Those 10 would constantly replenish. So if one scooped out 10, 10 more coins would instantly take its place. If it was turned over, it would just pour a constant stream of money. It would work as long as Fortunatus or the next generation of his rightful heirs lived. And it would work even if it was stolen. So, you know, keep it secret, keep it safe. Now, if he wanted to leave this forest and make this gift, you know, actually useful, he only had to follow the road before him, straight out of the forest, not turning around or looking back at Fortuna. If he did that, he would arrive at a village before nightfall. Fortunatus thanked the woman, turned, and followed the path, holding the purse close. The innkeeper looked at Fortunatus's shabby clothes, the ones he wore after spending half a week walking through the forest. Hmm, sorry, full up. Fortunatus reached into his purse at his side and drew out 10 golden crowns, setting them on the table. Would this do? The innkeeper smiled and nodded to one of his servants, a burly man who walked to the back. There was some muffled yelling, scuffling, and then a crash as Fortunatus saw someone get thrown out the window and roll into the street at twilight. At that sound, the innkeeper smiled. We just had a vacancy. After Fortunatus had eaten and bought new clothes from the innkeeper <laughs> that were definitely not pulled directly from the room of another one of his guests, Fortunatus asked about horses. The innkeeper confided that the horse trader was kind of a jerk. In fact, he would barely let the count of this region, the count of the wood, as he was called, see his horses. There was currently a dispute over a 300-crown horse 
because the horse trader wanted an extra 20 crowns. Fortunatus asked the innkeeper to point him in the direction of the stables. <laughs> he might have to buy the horse out from under the count, because he could afford an extra 20 crowns. And that's how Fortunatus ended up being tortured in prison. You see, he did buy the horse the Count of the Wood had his eye on, cash in hand, and took possession of it immediately. He spared no expense in the saddle and riding equipment. When the Count found out about it, he sent a servant to inquire about the man with the local innkeeper, and the innkeeper said he was only doing his job. Finally, the Count tracked down Fortunatus and invited him over for dinner. The invitation arrived with the Count's guards, alongside spear points, so it was pretty mandatory. The Count invited Fortunatus to sit and asked how a man wandering in the forest came across luxury horse money. Fortunatus took a sip of wine and sat back. Uh, sorry, but his money was his business. He interlaced his fingers behind his head and leaned back. It's a free country. The Count of the Wood cocked an eyebrow. This is medieval feudalism. It's really not a free country. He would tell Fortunatus what he thought. He thought that Fortunatus was, at best, a thief, and at worst, a murderer. He stole those coins, and he was going to try to pass himself off as an honorable man, but he wouldn't escape justice. Fortunatus laughed. Murder? Okay, who did he murder? Did the guy have a body? He would see the Count in court. The Count laughed as he signaled for his men. Oh, that's... that's cute. After being strung up in the Count's dungeon... Fortunatus confessed that he found the coins in the forest, and the Count only laughed at that, saying that, as lord of the forest, everything in it belonged to him. So now he had the right to the coins and the horse that was bought with them. Luckily, Fortunatus had thought ahead. Even slightly, the purse he had been arrested with wasn't the purse. He had stashed that out in the forest before entering town. Seeing as half of the town loved Fortunatus for his deep pockets, and weaponizing the power of the state for free horses was a bad look, the Count let Fortunatus off with a warning. A warning being Fortunatus getting thrown out the gate of the city, penniless and with a beating. So Fortunatus was back on the road, with an eye to being even more careful. And careful he was. He didn't stay in one place too long, getting clothes in one town, a horse in another, and hiring servants as he went. By the time he entered Nantes in France, he was a well-to-do nobleman, taking dinners with the Earl and staying at the best inn. Then he met Lupoldus. Lupoldus was also at the Earl's six-week-long wedding, and he was a man whose job it was to travel. He'd traveled through two empires and 20 kingdoms, all of Christendom, and whenever he arrived at a city, he sought out the nobles to tell them news of the world outside their realms, and he was paid for it. Now, he had reached his journey's end, and he would have to go home. After seven years, to see his wife and children, who he missed dearly. Fortunatus nodded. Cool, cool. Um, here's a fun idea. Maybe don't go home? Maybe lead Fortunatus around the world to all those cool kingdoms and stuff? Lupoldus said he loved his wife and kids, that he just left for nearly a decade. So much, Fortunatus nodded. Goes without saying, yeah. Lupoldus continued, and traveling around the world required so much money. Fortunatus laughed, dropping a sack of coins on the table. 200 crowns in all. 
Was that a good start? Lupoldus opened the bag. Wow, that was luxury horse money. You know what? His wife and kids had already been waiting seven years. What was an even decade? It's not like she could divorce him. I mean, middle ages, am I right? So, Lupoldus offered to escort Fortunatus around the world, got to pick out two new horses that night, and hire a servant for himself and a servant for his servant. Really, they left that week and started their trek around the known world. We'll follow Fortunatus on more of his adventures, but that, once again, will be right after this. The good thing about having an inexhaustible amount of money dangling from your waist is, well, that sentence. You have unlimited funds at your waist. The downside is also that. You are carrying your life savings from purse strings. A recurring theme in the story is the anxiety regarding the purse. And whenever Fortunatus gets into trouble, he loudly moralizes about how he should have chosen wisdom instead of wealth, because wisdom can't be taken away. After an incident in Constantinople, where Lupoldus killed an innkeeper, who was shimmying his way across the floor at Fortunatus's room in an attempt to steal the purse that Fortunatus slept clutching, Fortunatus started strapping it to his chest. They tossed the innkeeper's body into the well, proclaimed that they were so excited to return and speak to that same innkeeper. Where was he? Hmm, don't know. Okay, bye. And then never went back to Constantinople. After traveling all around Europe, Fortunatus decided that he was ready. After 15 years, he should go home and see his parents, whom he left in poverty when he sailed away with the Count. When he returned to Famagusta, on the eastern coast of Cyprus, he learned that his father and mother had died. Grieving, it's never easy. Now, it is easier in a mansion, sipping the best wine and surrounded by minstrels, singing for you around the clock, as Fortunatus was. Still, being home with all that cash, he decided that it was time to settle down. He half mentioned this to Lupoldus one morning, and it was overheard by one of the minstrels, and soon literally every girl in town was wearing her finest clothes and being paraded, not at all awkwardly by her father, in front of Fortunatus' door. Count Nimian, though, a nearby count elsewhere on Cyprus, was approaching this problem differently. He went straight to his buddy, the king. Count Nimian had three daughters. Honestly, he didn't care who Fortunatus married, as long as he married one of them, so Count Nimian could get his hands on some of that sweet, sweet new money. He was a good father. The king agreed to help his friend, and commanded Fortunatus to come before him. Fortunatus pushed his way through the sea of teenage girls, whose fathers were throwing them at a man over twice their age. He grimaced. Gross. They were, apparently, too old. Yeah, it's like that. So, he ended up going with a girl who was just a little over a third his age. After a convoluted and, frankly, a little boring exchange with the king, Fortunatus ended up marrying the youngest of the daughters of Count Nimian, the 13-year-old Cassandra. The king actually chided Fortunatus for interviewing the girls, saying that he was taking so long to make a decision, 
It was only a lifelong commitment. Why should it take longer than 15 minutes? After the wedding, Lupoldus arrived before his master, saying that he was too old to go home now. He lived in Northern Europe. He wouldn't survive the journey. So he was just going to live there on Cyprus. His wife and family were just going to have to like, wonder what happened to their dad. Though at this point, it probably wasn't a massive loss for them. Fortunatus told his elderly servant to enjoy his retirement, bought a mansion for him, and Lupoldus was dead within six months. Fortunatus and Cassandra lived together happily. He lived in extravagant retirement. She finished junior high. They had two sons, Andalusia and Impeto. As your children get older, you start to realize that your time with them is limited. They're growing up and becoming their own person. And you try to cling to each moment with them because you know the clock is ticking. Fortunatus never had that feeling. When his children were eight and 10, he got the itch and decided that it was time to go. He was pushing 50, and his wife was the ripe old age of 25, and he sat her down, asking for her consent to go. It said that the color flew from her face, and she wept, begging the Virgin Mary that her husband would respect her wishes, and not go. And Fortunatus replied by saying that no one could prevent this journey but God and death. Sidebar, if you're asking for someone's approval, but telling them that the only thing that can prevent what you're doing is Almighty God or the physical death of your body, you're not actually asking for consent. Cassandra at least made sure he left enough money behind for her and the children to be taken care of for the rest of their days, should anything happen to him. Fortunatus' plan was that he had traveled half of the world already. Because, as we all know, Northern Europe is half the world. Now, it was time to visit the other half. He had a ship constructed, said a maybe goodbye forever to his wife and children, and hit the sea. His first stop was in Alexandria, in Egypt, which is actually just a straight 300-mile shot across the sea. Fairly close. There, he met the Sultan and continued traveling east. He really wanted to see the land where pepper grows, somewhere in Africa, because who needs to be there for their children growing up when they can go see a real-life Mr. Rogers segment and learn how pepper grows? He traced the path of the ancient Hebrews through the desert, visited Mount Sinai, and popped over to Jerusalem. On the return trip, he had a layover in Alexandria. His galley was still returning from the land of Pepper, so he had dinner with the sultan. Spotting his galley outside, Fortunatus knew that his wanderings were at an end. He was finally on his way home. But first, the sultan was showing Fortunatus his greatest treasure. No, not the rubies, diamonds, sapphires, emeralds, pearls, golden candlesticks. Boring, no. This was a felt hat. A felt hat. The sultan nodded. Oh yeah, cost him a literal fortune. More than all the other wealth Fortunatus had seen combined. Fortunatus looked at it. It was a hat. The sultan shook his head. Oh, no, no. It was magical. It took you wherever you wished to be. If you were hunting you could wish yourself next to an animal, and boom, you'd be there, stabby stabby. If you were at war, you could wish yourself next to the rival sultan, killing him, and then be at home before anyone knew what was happening. Fortunatus looked the hat over. Huh, for it to be that magical, 
It had to be heavy, right? The sultan arched his eyebrows and shook his head. No, not at all. Here. He told Fortunatus to take his own hat off and rested the felt hat on the head of the guest of honor. Check it out. See what he meant? No heavier than the next hat. Fortunatus nodded, looking in the mirror. Wow, yeah. He would have never thought it was so light. Or that the sultan would be so foolish. I mean, seriously, how did he not see this coming? In an instant, Fortunatus was aboard his galley with his men. Go, go, drive. Don't ask questions. Leave now, he said. The sultan, meanwhile, was left pondering Fortunatus's words. See what coming? Fortunatus, Cassandra said to her husband a few weeks after his trip to see the whole world. Cassandra said that there was more mail for him. More angry, death-threat-filled mail. Fortunatus laughed it off. That was just the sultan. What was he going to do, though? Nothing, as it turned out. He had tried asking nicely. He had tried asking not so nicely. He had tried petitioning the Cypriot king. Try bribing the Cypriot king. Try bribing Fortunatus. This was like the 12th or 13th century, so things were chilly between Christianity and Islam. What on account of the Crusades and all? So sending people to actually attack Fortunatus would spark an international incident, if he could even get warships across the Mediterranean in the first place. Nope, Fortunatus got away with it. Why, I don't know, because having seen, quote, the entire world, more or less, heavy on the less, he decided to stay home and basically never use the hat. I guess except to maybe move from room to room or something, which is probably how I would end up using it. Yeah, I can have breakfast in Paris and dinner in Australia, but but I would probably just use it for something lazy, like not wanting to go up the stairs or something. And this is, actually, the end of Fortunatus' story. Of course, Cassandra, despite being 21 years his junior, went first. But Fortunatus' story will end with him on his deathbed. After a life of undeserved luck, failing upward, and marrying a child, he died a peaceful death, surrounded by loved ones, and was laid to rest in honor. His sons, though, would not be so lucky. Normally, they would have gotten their own episode. But they have a bag that makes gold, and a teleportation hat, and for an even moderately long-time fan of the show, you'll remember that, with those two items, you're two-thirds of the way to the Grimm Brothers story, Nose Apples, from episode 186. Now, this predates that story by like 300 years at least. Anyway, one of Fortunatus' last requests was that the boys not separate the two gifts the hat, and the bag of money, and also that they never tell anyone about either. And Petto, the younger brother, didn't have to ask the goddess of fortune for wisdom enough to know that the bag of money was like an invitation for anxiety. He was content for his brother to just turn the bag upside down for 10 minutes straight so he could live in their family home with enough money to never have to work a day in his life. Then go traveling around with your entire bank account strapped to your chest. Andalusia, the older son, Andalusia decided that he did want to travel around with his fortune on his person and took his first turn with the bag. It was good. He would be fine. He wasn't, but we'll get to that. Andalusia took his family's sleaze up a level when he started paying nobles' wives in Italy to spend some time with him, which meant that in no time, he was pretty much banned from Italy. So, like his dad, he found his way to London, where, 
bribing everyone, he met the King of England, and more importantly, the King of England's daughter, Agrippina. This is where we get into nose apples territory. Because Andalusia was so entranced by Agrippina that he told her the secret, and she immediately took interest, saying that they were going to get married, yeah, but they should get to know each other first, right? He should come up to her room tonight. One drugged glass of wine and counterfeit purse later, and Andalusia woke up in his own room. He didn't actually notice the purse missing until it was time to pay his servants. Really bad time to realize you're broke, by the way, and freaked out. Being the great employer that he was, he immediately fired all of them without back pay in a foreign land, put on the hat, and did some jewelry heists. He disguised himself and teleported to the best jewelers all around Italy, where he would ask to see their best gems, hold said gems, and then zip back to his home in England. All this was a way to get the princess to come out with the purse to buy some jewels, because I guess she had the will to not give it to her father when he demanded it. The king, being a king, decided that he had enough money, and at least he wouldn't have to pay her dowry now. When the princess arrived at this pop-up scam stand and held the jewels, Andalusia grabbed her arm, put on the hat, and zipped away to a remote island on the edge of the world, Hibernia, aka Ireland. He laughed in her face, saying that it was him the whole time. He had taken her here, and he was going to leave her here. The princess interrupted, saying that she was starving. Actually, would he please, please, grab her some apples from that tree before he left? He looked up, huh? Sure. He was abandoning a princess in a strange land without provisions, but he wasn't a monster. He asked her to hold on to the hat while he climbed the tree. To shield herself from the sun, the princess put on the hat and not even knowing how it worked, wished aloud that she was back in her bedroom, and Alosia froze. Wait a second. Soon, he was abandoned without the hat or the purse. Forlorn, he took a bite of the apple he had found, and felt horns growing out of his head. In this story, it's a hermit that tells him the secret of the apples that change how you look, and the apples that change you back. A long time later, both types of apples in hand, he arrived back in London, where he very much looked the part of a world traveler, offering apples from Damascus to the princess's servant as she walked by. The servant bought the apples, and a few days after the sale, that same servant was inquiring quietly around London if there was a doctor who could get rid of horns growing out of someone's head. Enter our protagonist, wearing a white coat and a disguise. He refused to tell them his name, which is what you want from your doctor, and told the princess to just, hey, drink this liquid I'm giving you. Suffice to say, if your doctor is someone you met in an alley who won't tell you his real name, you might want to get a second opinion. Still, his potion worked to reduce the horns, and he was such a casual sadist that part of the treatment involved wearing an ape skin over the horns, so the court ape was killed and flayed. Like I said, there's a lot to the story. Once he was in her room, he secretly grabbed the hat and demanded payment, and when she pulled the purse out, he grabbed her and wished them to the edge of the world. Once again, Ireland. There, he ignored her entreaties to get rid of the horns and take her home, instead dropping her off at a convent, paying for her to stay, but making sure it was so far from anything that she could never leave safely on her own. She would only stay there for a year or so, because Andalusia earned his way into the good graces of the Cypriot royalty when he offered to set their son up with the English princess, who had recently gone missing. Andalusia said that he could talk to the necromancer who put her there, and who definitely wasn't him, and zipped to Ireland. Agrippina would do 
anything to get out of the convent because she, quote, did not have a mind for prayer, so she agreed to marry the Cypriot prince. Andalusia, the son of Fortunatus's end, came quickly after that. Turns out the kid who couldn't help but draw attention to his wealth and extravagant behavior finally drew too much attention to his wealth and extravagant behavior. Also, if you have a hat that can take you anywhere with a thought, maybe don't leave it at home all the time because Andalusia and his servants were ambushed on the road and the servants, who, who were so happy to just be hired back, were killed to a man. Andalusia was taken captive and after some moderate torture, spilled the beans about the purse. When the other brother, Impetto, learned of his brother's capture, he shredded the hat for fear that people would come after it next and then proceeded to die from the stress of the situation. The two nobles that kidnapped Andalusia took possession of the purse, but one didn't think that it was wise to let Andalusia continue living, since he was a necromancer or something. The two nobles agreed that he would live in prison and that they would share the purse. But when the time came for the two thieves to exchange the purse, for the first to give it to the second for his turn, the first went to Andalusia's jail cell and strangled the son of Fortunatus with his bare hands because, quote, dead men wage no wars, removing the risk. But also, if you remember, removing the power of the purse. The promise was that as long as Fortunatus's heirs remained alive, the purse would keep its power. When the offending noble passed off the purse to his co-conspirator, the other thought that it was a fake. The pair immediately got into a knife fight with one killing the other and one being pretty critically wounded. Before the second one died, he confessed to killing Andalusia, the king's favorite, and everyone who was even suspected of knowing of Andalusia's capture and doing nothing was hung from the castle walls. Because, you know, it's so easy for a servant to get an audience with the king and inform on his own master. In the end, neither Andalusia nor Ampeto had heirs, and their castle and all their riches passed to the prince of Cyprus and his wife, who was, you guessed it, Agrippina. The story ends with a fair bit of moralizing, saying that if you're presented with a choice between wisdom and riches, don't be greedy. Choose wisdom, because no one can take that away. Besides, King Solomon was wise, and he was super rich, so you'll get money too. Which, yeah, is just greed with wisdom as the middleman. So that is the long, winding story of Fortunatus and his heirs. It's fairly famous and has been turned into a play, and certain parts of it have filtered down to other fairy tale traditions. If you'd like to read the original, I posted a link in the show notes. Next week, we are back in Greek myth with the stories of Apollo and Daphne and Pyramus and Thisbe. And if you want a little taste of what's to come this week, we're telling the story of another Cypriot, Pygmalion, this Friday on the member feed. You can check that out at support.mythpodcast.com. The creature this time is Babi, B-A-B-I, from Egyptian mythology. The dead might be dead, but their love life doesn't have to be. When the time is right, Bobby. See, Bobby is an angry baboon who has lots of jobs. One of those is being the god of virility for the dead. I didn't realize this was a thing, but apparently dead people are getting together all with the help of Bobby. But that's not his only role, because if, at the time of your death, your heart is weighed against truth, balance, and order by the gods, 
and you're found wanting, well, sorry, Bobby gets to eat your entrails. And sometimes when you're not found wanting. It's a little fuzzy, so some texts say that people had to invoke spells to ward off Bobby's attention so the deceased could enter paradise. Basically, Bobby is a murderous, angry baboon god who might eat you whether or not you deserve it. Kind of like non-deified types of baboons. I guess if you make it past him, then he's willing to help you get something going on in the afterlife. Because, yeah, he also apparently helps dead guys make something happen. In that same vein, in other places I've read that Bobby's uh, anatomy is either a key to unlocking the gates of heaven or the mast of a ship carrying the dead to the great beyond. Don't know how that works? Don't really need to. When he's not slurping up a long intestine or helping dead guys date, he can be kind of helpful for the people on earth. He, according to one source I found, pops down to earth and helps people defend against snakes or navigate choppy waters. So if you want to make a new friend who can help you on the water, keep snakes away, and help you connect with that dead special someone, consider Bobby. But also be aware that he might eviscerate and devour you. About 50% chance, actually. So, you know, keep that in mind. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.